0: We're excited to privilege you and i with the ministry of dr joe davis he's no stranger to the lakeside family uh, dr joe is a professor at southeastern university of the assemblies of god our assemblies of god school there in lakeland florida that is growing by leaps and bounds it is our largest uh, university with the Assemblies of God. Southeastern's now larger than even OR, OR, ORU, Oral Roberts University. It's outpacing uh, all of the colleges and universities in that context. We thank the Lord for Dr. Joe's ministry there. He is a professor in the practical theology uh, department where he prepares ministers to be pastors and missionaries, evangelists. Uh, for God's kingdom, for God's work, He has his PhD in analytical reasoning. God has used him in secular universities and campuses across the country to debate with communists and feminists and uh, atheists and he has a wealth of knowledge. Uh, he took uh, uh, several of us. I, I see a pew of them over there. They're all sitting together this morning, uh, uh, Joe, uh, to Israel in May of 2014. Hallelujah. Amen and uh we uh he'll tell you a little bit more about israel he also is the direct in all of the spare time he has he directs a boy's orphanage where he is the director of a boy's orphanage god is using dr joe mightily and he has a special word for us this morning put your hands together and welcome dr joe davis amen blessings take your
1: liberty well, thank you so much, Pastor Phil. It's great to be with you all again. I have done something this morning that I haven't done for 11 years. And I actually had to brag about it to my wife. I went out to my car and wiped snow off the windshield. <laughs> and, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I, 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 it was such a neat experience. And I just thought, you know, I bet, those, I bet all those people in Michigan just are, are, they probably feel sad for me that I'd... In Florida, I don't get to do that at, at all. Yeah. Do you do you feel sad? Do you feel sad for me? Yeah. No, not a bit. <laughs> uh, I'd love to take you to Israel. And yes, I uh, I had the great opportunity to take your pastor and wife and, uh, and uh, a few of you in the uh, the congregation here. Imagine what it would be like to have your morning devotional in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Did we do that? We sure did, and even after that, we have a lesson on walking on water. It's non-refundable. No, no one wanted to take me up on that lesson. All joking aside, and then we, we, I'm going to take. We've made special arrangements this year, and I can't remember if we did this. Did we're going to pray for one hour in the Garden of Gethsemane? Can you imagine that? And if you can't stay awake, I come along. And could you not pray for for and uh, we will we'll go to Mount Carmel where Elijah called down fire from heaven. Uh and uh you know, just a, a an amazing place. And we'll have communion at the garden tomb. I'd love for you to come uh if you would like more information. There's a website, it's called The Israel Adventure, W W The Israel Adventure and uh, cost of its 3500 please feel free to come. We stay in first-class hotels, Pastor Phil can tell you. We stay at a, I'm almost embarrassed to say we stay at a spa hotel on the Sea of Galilee, and your balcony overlooks the Sea of Galilee from when we're up in Tiberias. But if you're able to go, please let me know. I'd love to take you. You can ask some of the wonderful people, including Pastor. About that. I'm also, uh, as you heard, and I'd like your prayers for my boys. Um, the boys that uh, I get to take care of are uh, uh, victims of trauma. And 85% of them have either suffered physical or sexual abuse or malnutrition. And so I'd like your prayers for them because we are in a spiritual warfare for the souls of these young men who've had horrible things happen to them. Absolutely horrible. And uh, I want to tell you, though, it's a lot of fun. Uh, being uh, with all these young boys it makes me feel young you can look at me and say you need it Uh, and uh, anyway I was I was there uh, walking out and a new new young guy came in and he didn't know me I didn't know him he didn't know I was the executive director most of them usually bow when I walk by and no I'm joking Uh, but uh, he said to me uh, hey come here and so I walked over and I said yeah what and he goes uh, up on the screen there's a the pictures that you show, he goes, do you have a movie star in that? And I said, no, no, it's just our staff and some of the boys. And he goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. And so I waited, and it, and it rolled past, and, and there was a picture of me. And, and I thought, Lord have mercy, this child really needs help. And so I said, no, no, that's, uh, that's just me. I said, it's not a movie star. And he looked at me, and he looked up at the screen, and he looked at me, and he looked up the screen, he looked one more time at me, and then at the screen he goes, you've gotten a lot older. <laughs> it's such a joy to work with these boys. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Job nine. Job nine, And you heard Pastor Phil say that uh, one of the things I like to do is I like to go around and I ask people to ask the hardest question that they can think of. Um, I do this before hundreds and thousands of people, whether it be a congregation or whether it be uh, people who have come specifically to try to refute Christianity. I hear that you're going to watch, uh, those of you who are able to, a film tonight, and uh, that film is on apologetics, uh, apologetics uh, meaning having a, reason, a reasoned response uh, for the hope that is within us. And so I, uh, when I'm doing these doubt nights, when I'm doing these uh, doubt days where people get to ask questions, almost always a question will come up about suffering. And so what, the reason I want to talk about suffering today is because according to the surveys of people who do not believe in God, the number one reason people do not believe in God is evil and suffering in the world. And so it's understandable because evil and suffering, even if you're a believer, can really hit you and throw you for a loop. And the worst kind of suffering, of course, is suffering that you never saw coming. I mean, if you have time to prepare for it, you, you might be able to feel a little bit better. But when it blindsides you, I mean, the truth of the matter is just hard. And all of you, and, I, and you're like, gee, I'm sorry I came for this part, all of you are going to experience. Well, how do I know that? Because even the scriptures teach that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. You say, well, how do you be made perfect if you're perfect already? Meaning his humanity took all of the tests that would come its way and he passed. He passed with the grade of perfect, meaning that he he was able to do it. Now, Jesus says this very specifically, if they did this to me talking about people they'll do it to you. And he says, in your life, you'll have trials. He said, storms will come. And to make that point, you remember, you remember he takes the the disciples out for a few storms on the Sea of Galilee. One time he sends them ahead. And so it isn't like you're not going to have storms in your life. So there's two things I want you to know about preparation for this teaching. Number one, you're going to have it, so you need to know about it. I think that's a fair statement. The second thing is people that you talk to are going to have storms, and some of their storms may even be worse than yours. And one of our calling to be like Christ is to be in the world with those who are suffering, to show the love of Christ and the caring and the compassion of Christ. And so if there was ever a book to deal with suffering, it's the book of Job. And so let's take a look at Job 1, and we are look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now, Job doesn't fear God for nothing, does he? Satan responded. (laughs) You you put a hedge of protection around his household and everything he has. You bless the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out all the way out throughout the land. But stretch your hand... And strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, "Very well, then, everything he has is in your hands, but on this man himself you you cannot lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we thank you for your word, for your word is the way that we understand the deep mysteries of life itself. And Father, we come to this ancient scripture because we too face these issues that Job faced, unexplained suffering and and being blindsided, Lord, when we never saw it coming. And so, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit now would reveal your word to us. And meet us right where we are, Help us to see you in the midst of even the darkest moments. Let the light shine. And Holy Spirit, come now and assure us of your love. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, it was one of the most idyllic moments that I've ever had, and I usually like to go to the beach when I want to get away. You can say, well, you live in Florida, but actually one of my favorite beaches is Cape Hatteras down around Salvo Waves and Rodanthe. There was a movie made years ago about Rodanthe, and the reason that that was a romantic spot is because it's just in the middle of nowhere. There isn't anybody around. It's the perfect place for a pastor like me, who had been ministering to his people, and had been trying to comfort them in their suffering, and part of what had occurred in this particular year is that the suffering of our church, we'd seen many, many lives that had been touched by suffering, and, and many, many people who had come in who had been broken. As a matter of fact, we took statistics, and one-third of all of the women in our church had either been sexually abused or raped. Numerous people had had bad medical diagnoses. And as a pastor, I wanted to mourn with them, to love them, to let them know how much Jesus loved them through me just being there with them. I couldn't necessarily reverse some of the things that had happened, but I wanted them to show them my love so that they might believe that there was someone who loved them even greater than I. But the truth of the matter is, when you care for people, and pastor knows this, when you care for people, it's hard. Pastoring is one of the hardest jobs and one of the best jobs that I've ever had. And I remember when I went down the Southeastern, I was actually teaching 27 credit hours one semester, and one of my professors said to me, how do you do that? And I said, you've never been a pastor, have you? And he goes, that's insane, the amount that you're teaching. I said, you've never been a pastor, have you? And the truth of the matter is, he hadn't. Because the average pastor, and Pastor Phil did not pay me to say this. I'm telling you because I was a pastor. The average pastor works 66 hours a week. That's the average ones. The average church is only 125 people, by the way. And so you can imagine the amount of work that goes in. Pastor Phil showed me the building program. And I sort of chuckled to myself, and I said, God bless you. Because I know what it's like. I know what it's like, and in this particular year, what had happened in my life is tragedy occurred and that I had lost someone very close to me. It was the very first time that I'd had someone close to me die. It was my grandmother, and I would go stay with her quite a bit, and my grandmother had this little black dot on her heel, and she, she didn't really think it was anything except it turned out to be melanoma. And when she finally went to the doctor, it had already progressed greatly, and so the doctor gave them a very grim diagnosis, and he said that she would not recover, and he was right. She didn't. And when I went to the beach this year, I I was looking to just get away from it all. To just have some time where I could be by myself with God and with my family and not have to think about all of the suffering that was in the world and to just have peace. My daughter was there. She had just been born a little over a year ago. And and she was playing with her little bucket. She was just as cute as she could be in her little really bathing suit. It was pink and blue and I think if she was old enough, she probably would never have worn it. But it was just as cute as could be. And she had this little yellow bucket and this yellow, yellow, little, little shovel. And she'd be putting the sand in the bucket. And she seemed happy. I was happy. I had a tall glass of lemonade and, and the sports page. And I was reading that sports page like I, I would never stop reading it. And I, I, I digested every single batting average of every single person on every single box score. And I just read it because I could. I didn't have to, have to pay attention to anybody else but me. And so I was just going to indulge myself in sports until my brains came out. And, and it was glorious. I don't know if I ever retire, but I now have the Major League Baseball channel. My wife probably won't be able to tell if I've gone into a coma. I'll just be looking at the screen. (laughs) My wife said, I'm going to go on up, take a shower. And it was getting to be around 7 o'clock, and the sun was going down, and it couldn't have been more beautiful. The surf was rolling in, the sun was starting to set, and there was my beautiful daughter. And then something pierced my tranquility. It was the sound of a bumblebee. The bumblebee was attracted to my daughter because in the wake of my grandmother's death, I decided that the best thing to do was to cake my daughter with copious amounts of suntan lotion. It's actually a very good idea, and I wholeheartedly recommend it, except I had put so much suntan lotion on her she looked like Casper the Friendly Ghost. And the bee was attracted to the fragrance that was in the suntan lotion. The bee wasn't paying any attention to me. And it started to circle her. You may not know this, but more people actually die from bee stings than snake bites, alligator bites, and shark bites combined. And also uh, sound monitors. (laughs) I just want to point out this is sound teaching. And so, as this bee was circling around her, I, I, I began to wonder. Well, I wonder if she's allergic. How do you How do you know if you're allergic to bee stings? Well, the answer is, you, you get stung. That's how you learn. And then you blow up like a balloon, okay? And then you go, "Oh my golly, you're allergic to bee stings." Which, if we were at our home, would have been fine. But the truth of the matter is, we were we were purposely in the middle of nowhere. And so then the thought ran through my hind, my, uh, hind that's where I think a lot, anyway, uh, through my head, <laughs> through my head that yeah, we're about 30 minutes from the closest hospital, and, and what if she really is allergic, and, and oh, by the way, my father went into a coma because of a bee sting, and, and oh my golly, she could die. The bee began to circle around, looking for a spot to land. I knew what my fatherly duty was, and so I rolled up the newspaper, and I waited as it came closer, and just as it was about to light on my daughter's shoulder, I went wham! And I nailed the bee! And I thought, yeah, I got that bee, and I got up my sandal, and I pushed that little bee all the way to China. I knew that bee would never rise to sting my daughter. No sir. But in my great desire to save my daughter, I had brushed her shoulder with my hand as I struck the bee. She did not feel the sting of the bee, but she felt the sting of my hand. My daughter looked up at me, and her little lip began to quiver. She was pre-verbal so there were no words that she could say. And a large tear formed in her eye and then all of a sudden she just broke loose and started crying. I looked at her and I realized that couldn't actually tell her why I had done what I had done. I knew in my mind that what I had done had possibly even saved her life. I knew that what I had done was done because I loved her. I knew I, what I had done was because I I knew the future and how it would work out if in fact she was stung at least the possibility of it and I knew that I needed to act as she began to cry. I did the only thing that I knew to do to someone who did not have the intellectual ability to understand my thoughts. And I grabbed her in my arms, and I pulled her close to me, and she buried her head in my chest and just cried for about ten minutes. Why would a loving father strike his child? Why wouldn't a father who cared not at least give some warning as to the blow that was about to be levied? And why wouldn't a caring father ever hurt somebody who this father loved? Today I'd like to talk to you about suffering, And I'd like to talk to you about suffering because I know that there are such things as loving fathers who sometimes act in a knowledge higher than their children's understanding, particularly when there's a wide gulf between that understanding. And I know that there's loving fathers who actually act on behalf of their children even when it hurts the children. And I know that that loving father would gladly die in that child's place, if he could save her. The story of Job is about A man who is perplexed by the suffering that is going on in his own life. For a long time everything was going great. Everything is working exactly the way it's supposed to. Life is logical. Life makes sense. There's a perfect proportionality for goodness. When I'm good I get blessed. When I'm bad then I don't. Or something worse happens. And Job is the perfect example of it. Everything is perfectly logical, perfectly proportional, perfectly right in the world until all of a sudden he's blindsided. He never knew what hit him. And in his first blind sight, he begins to contemplate why. And his first answer is, well, the truth of the matter is I never brought anything into the world. Naked came I, naked shall I return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And some of you here sing the song, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you all sing that here? Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, that's from right here. It's the song right after Job gets landslided blindsided. And so one of the things that the song is trying to convey is that I'm going to bless the Lord at all times even though all of the times don't really seem to be great times. Job has to come to a conclusion about God and so the book of Job is a journey of Job as he begins to come to an understanding of God in the midst of his suffering which by the time he's done is going to be different than the understanding he had prior to his suffering So Joe comes to three conclusions: First, that God has a purpose, even if it's not seen, and that there's a difference between irrational and transrational, and wouldn't it make sense that if, in fact, that God knows more than I do, that I wouldn't understand every single thing that God does? And that part of what faith is isn't believing in ill logic, but believing in trans logic, or believing that there is a reasoning and an understanding above mine, which makes my understanding possible, but not total. And faith is a belief that, in fact, someone understands, even if I don't. I do not have to understand everything to believe in God. By the same token, I'm going to tell you as a PhD, I don't want you to leave your brain at the door because the Christian faith makes more sense than any other form of religion or any other form of thought that I know of. If, in fact, I'm merely a chemical accident put together by a configuration of mere coincidence, and the truth of the matter is that toasters and microwaves don't have ethics. Now, you may not have understood what I said, but let me put it this way. I can throw chemicals together. I can throw machinery together. But I would never imagine that something thrown together by a sheer accident would be called to be moral. And even if you have higher intelligence and you say, well, higher intelligent beings should be moral, maybe just the opposite. Maybe moral people are really the naive people. And you may not know this, but in the German, as Nietzsche points out, that the word kind or nice originally meant stupid. I'm not so sure it logically follows that people who are the most giving are the ones who win the most, as Leo Durocher used to say, nice guys finish last. And I will tell you that the top 1% of those who who earn income in the United States, we know to be the least giving. And by the way, you want to guess who percentage-wise the most giving are? Those who have the least. And so this is why Jesus says to the woman who comes up, who puts in just a small amount, he says, she's given more than everybody, because she gave out of her need, and the rest of you gave out of your comfort. And so I'm not so sure that it makes sense to believe in anything at all, ever, unless there's a God. God. But suffering pushes us to the brink of where we want to say, I'm done, I'm, I'm done. And basically what we're saying is, I no longer want to play by these rules. And I remember my daughter, Rachel, one time when we were playing Candyland, and she was winning the whole game. And she was cackling. Don't you hate it when people cackle when they're winning? She was rubbing it in our face every time she'd roll the dice. She'd roll, and she'd go, oh, look, I get to move forward. And she'd look at us and go, ha, 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 ha. Well, all of the children, my wife and I were like, let her draw a card that sends her back to go. And we're all wishing. She got to the very end and she's rolling to go into (laughs) Candyland. And she got the card that sent her all the way back. Everybody began to laugh except her. You see, she liked how the game was going when there weren't any setbacks. So what did she do as we all laughed, she put her hand under the board, and she tossed the board across the room, and she said, I hate this stupid game. Is that how you feel about life? As long as the roles are all going my way, well, this is a great game. And my golly, why can't you play the game? But then when you get that card that you weren't expecting, have you thrown your relationship with God across the room? Or have you better yet put him on the shelf? Because you understand it's illogical not to believe in God, but you put him on the shelf until he comes around to your way of thinking. I'm going to tell you right now there's no question that there are many people in this congregation right now you have put God on the shelf until God comes around to your way of thinking. We just need to give God a little time. Well, Job is placed in this position where he has to come to an understanding of God and of himself. And so if you're going to ask what are the reasons that God allows suffering, here it is. Number one, to come to a greater understanding of who you are and who he is. Now, that's not going to be my last answer, but it's going to be one of them. Why? Because the Bible states that. Deuteronomy 8, 2 and 4, it says, I took you into the wilderness so that you would learn about yourself. And I tested you so that you would would hunger. And he said, I taught you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So the wilderness experience was a time of reflection about myself and God. I don't blame you for not wanting to be in the promised land right now. But if you read the scriptures, it actually says, he purposely did not take them to the shortest route to the promised land, but he began to take them a longer route because they were still slaves in their mind. They had not experienced true freedom and they could not receive the blessings that God had for them God knew that because they were completely unprepared and so God begins to train them and part of what the scriptures say about suffering is that it has to do with purification and helping us to be able to receive the things that God has for us but that my friends is just the beginning layer when we look into the book of Job we see a evil element and so the words suffering and evil go together and we see this person called Satan and a lot of times people will blame Satan for all the things that are occurring and I am NOT saying that there isn't a demonic force in the universe I am NOT saying that there isn't something called Satan. you say well you have a PhD you believe in Satan yes but if you read closely Satan doesn't have near as much power as we give him. Read it. First of all, who is the person that initiates the conversation that leads into this whole thing? Isn't it God? I think it is. And even when Satan says, look, he he doesn't doesn't love you for for yourself. He's really just loving you because of all the stuff he can get. Notice He says, you've put a hedge of protection around him. Who put the hedge? Can I tell you that God does have a hedge of protection. It is not the same for everybody. Remember in John 21, Peter is concerned because he's just heard that John's going to get all of these blessings and he says, well, what about me? And Jesus says, well, you're going to be sort of Well, you're going to be bound and you're going to be taken where you don't want to go and we're going to crucify you upside down. (laughs) I'm sorry, could I have a rewind on that one, please? Um, I I like over here. And so Peter says to Jesus, what about him? What about that one? And I want you to hear the words of Jesus because they apply to you. What is it to you what I do with him? You follow me. Now, you see, you probably don't like that because what you want to do is you want to put God in a box and you want to put him in a corner and say, well, you did that with this one and you got to do it with me. I know exactly how you feel because I've done that too. When I first started a church, the truth of the matter is it wasn't easy and no one was coming. That's the reality. The first year I was there, hardly anybody was coming. And I used to go to church and I would hear a voice say to me, you fool." You've spent seven years of education, lots of money and lots of time, and you can't even feed your family. Boy, you're pathetic. Well, the truth of the matter was, all of what was said was true, except for the pathetic part, I, and I was struggling with that. And this is how I went to church to preach on the victory of Jesus. <laughs> you know, I was just like, yeah, this isn't working. And... And I remember thinking to myself, gosh, I, it is true I can't feed my family. And gosh, it is true I've spent a lot of time and energy, and I, I'm just really not getting anywhere. And the only way I defeated that voice was I finally said to myself, even if I made a mistake and I didn't do what I was supposed to do, there's one thing I'm right in, and that's that I'm trying to do God's will and what I believe he wants me to do. And so even if I'm wrong, I'm right. And oddly enough the voice stopped at that point. Oh, and the second part is the church took off. I think there probably was something going on there. Remember, I said he took you into the wilderness so that you could understand who he is and who you are. And so Job is in this position. He's he's struggling because, in all honesty, he's been blindsided. Blindsided by whom? By the devil. But we need to dig a little deeper there. Because Satan doesn't have much power at all. And what is it that Jesus says to Pilate when Pilate says, Look, look, you stupid peasant. Don't you understand I have the power of life and death in my hands? Do you remember what Jesus responds when Pilate says that? The only power you have is what is given to you from above. And so evil always thinks it has power. Evil is always talking about how much power it has, but the truth of the matter is the only power that Satan has is what God allows him to have. Now, here's why. Number one, if Satan had independent and autonomous power, and here's where the logic is going to kick in, you would not be here. How do I know that? Doesn't Satan come to kill, rob, and destroy? Well, if in fact he had the ability to do whatever he wanted, why would you think that you'd even have the ability to live? Wouldn't he have already killed you? And certainly he would have killed you before you became a Christian because that assures that you're going to go to heaven. If he can get you beforehand, by golly, he would have done it. Why didn't he do it? Because he couldn't. And the same is true in every area of your life. It isn't that he has power. Even when you sin and you do stupid things, God still is in control of the limitation of evil. Let me give you an example. When I was 13 years old, a very attractive young lady invited me over to her house, and her parents weren't home. Sounded like a good opportunity for me as an unsaved 13-year-old. And so I went over, and she said, hey, I got this really cool game. You want to play it? I go, what is it? She said, it's the Ouija board. I said, yeah, okay, let's play. So she goes, what you do is you you roll these things, you ask questions, and it will answer back to you. And I said, oh, okay." So I tried it, and it didn't work at all. And I said, boy, this is a stupid game. And so I had to go home, and I left, and what have you. And so the next day she called me, and she said, right after you left, I started asking it questions, and it started answering me. But it wouldn't answer when you were in the room. Even in my unsaved state, the Lord knowing that I would hear, save me from untold evil. Now I'm going to be honest with you, I did a lot of it to myself. Now I was pretty good at it. And so maybe the reason that God has individual plans is because you are individuals. And so one of the things that Job and his friends are going to learn is there's no such thing as a general plan to God in each and every case. He has coordinated thousands and millions and billions of individual plans. Because if there's a general plan, God would be unjust, because not everybody comes to the same situation with the same context. Let me give you an example. There was a man that would come to our church, and he would drive up in the parking lot. And the truth of the matter is he would camp out there, probably maybe from 4 or 5 AM to when we started church, and he would be coming off his heroin high he'd spent all of Saturday night getting high the night before and I remember my wife said to me one time she goes do you think we ought to do something about it I said do something about what he's coming to church and she goes but he's high and I said yes not that I want him to get high but I don't care what your state is you walk through those doors and meet Jesus let him come and touch you And so sometimes he would come to my church, he would fall asleep right in the middle of my sermon. And that's when I threw him out. (laughs) So let this be a warning. (laughs) I'm joking. But that man kept coming to church and coming to church. And one day, he came forward. And he accepted Jesus into his heart, and he broke his heroin addiction. And not only did he break his heroin addiction, five years later, he was running our group for addicts. And so one of the flaws that we have as human beings is we look to other people to measure ourselves. You need to look to God to get an accurate measurement. If you look to other people, you're always going to be confused, and that's exactly what Jesus is telling Peter about John. You leave, you leave him to me, you follow me. Wasn't that the original agreement? When our church was first started, I told you we weren't doing well, and I had a good friend of mine that, that unbeknownst to him caused me a lot of spiritual anguish because the Lord was blessing him. Now, I know you've never, you're have you too spiritual to have ever thought thoughts like this. But I'm going, what about me? What about me? You know, I'm over here trying to do your work. And you know, it ain't happening. Let me tell you how good he had it. He left our theology program in the master's degree. He decided he would go into psychology. And so right after he got his master's degree in psychology, he he was hired by a company and they gave him a BMW. And he made well he made fifty thousand to seventy five thousand a year and he worked twenty hours a week. You want to know how much I made in my first year of ministry? Yeah, I didn't make anything, <laughs> not, not even $1. Granted, people gave me turnips. I mean, the turnips were great. I mean, you know the turnips were to die for. And every now and then, somebody allowed me to use their old car that was really about ready to die and should have already died. But I got to use an old car. It was glorious. And so I remember saying to the Lord, "You know, this just isn't fair. You're blessing him; I'm not getting blessed. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just confused as to why you are treating him so good, and I really am trying to do your well. This is called God's idea of a joke. We uh, met, and I told the church we had about one more month, and if the money didn't come in, we we're going to have to shut the doors. I said, "I am not." I am not going to run a church that God doesn't want to be on the face of the planet, God's perfectly able. And so the next week I received in the mail a check for our entire deficit unbeknownst to this person, who was the very person I complained against. He had been told by the Lord to start tithing to our church. And the 7,500 was the difference between us making it and not making it that year. This is God saying, I told you, would would you just let me be in charge? Would you you mind if I just be at the wheel a little bit? I had to teach my son this lesson years ago. He was like three years old, and I was on the riding tractor. We had a lot of lawn, and so... He was riding in my lap, and it was a lot of fun because I let him hold the wheel, and, and it gave the appearance that he was driving until he discovered that my hand was on the bottom. And so he looked at my hand and was quite perturbed. He's three years old. He knows how to drive. And so he pushed my hand off. Have any of you done that with the Lord? He pushed my hand off. Of course, what he didn't realize is that it doesn't go unless I put my gas on, the pedal on the gas. And I've also got the brake there, too. So he said to me, I drive. I said, OK. I thought, let's allow him to drive a little bit. So he began to drive, and it wasn't long until we hit an oak tree, a very large oak tree. Now, I slowed down so the impact wouldn't be great, but we ran up and hit this oak tree. He looked back at me and said, we stuck. (laughs) Isn't that that the way it is? You want to know why there's suffering? Because God will allow you to drive until you hit that oak tree. So that you will turn around to your father and say, we stuck. We stuck. What are you going to do about it? How would you ever let me get into this position? What he didn't know is that I have another gear called Reverse. And so I put it in reverse, and we backed up, and I said, can I help you this time? He goes, we do it together. The book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, and from beginning to end, it never allows Satan to have any power. Now, I want to tell you, I know a lot of people believe that Satan has power because in the temptation, Jesus is told by Satan... Well, I have all the kingdoms of the world, and I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Okay, I want to make a couple of points about that. Number one, don't develop your theology from Satan's words. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> See? Um, just because Satan does, says it doesn't mean it's true. How do I know? Well, three times in the Bible it says these words, and you look it up in Psalm 24, one for one of them. The earth is the Lord's. And everything in it, some your King James will say, in the fullness thereof. Let me say it again. The earth is the Lord's. Who owns it? The Lord. More to the point, and here's the logical aspect. It's not actually possible for Satan to have control over anything. Otherwise, if he has control over one thing, God cannot be all-powerful. Or, how shall we say, omnipresent even. If there's an area where Satan has excluded and God's not allowed, bottom line is God cannot be omnipotent, omnipowerful, or able to be in all places at once. So the simple truth of the matter is the Bible does not say that Satan has been given power. He's called the prince of this world because, in fact, the world, meaning the way that people think, have aligned their thoughts to his way of thinking not that he's in control let me prove it some more when Jesus is coming on earth and he comes down to earth the demoniacs recognize him do they not now I want you to think about this listen to the exchange between the demoniacs and Jesus have you come to torment us here is what isn't said hey This place is ours, get out. Do do you hear anybody saying that to Jesus? Nope, not once. I'm going to tell you why. Because they're scared out of their gourd. It's more this way. The landowner or the person who owns the building has come down to see how the rental's going. And by golly, I'm not liking what I'm seeing. And so they cry out, do not torment us not get off my land. So one of the things that the book of Job is trying to teach is that, in fact, you're given far too much credit to the evil one. The only power he has is what is given to him from above, and when that power is orchestrated and delegated, then all things work to the good of those that love the Lord, including the bad things. Now, not only is there a limitation to evil, but there is also an explanation. And here's where it gets interesting, and here's where I want you to listen up for those conversations that you have in Starbucks with people who don't believe in God because this is the number one reason. And this is when you're in the midst of it, how you need to address it, both biblically, as we've been doing, we've said there's a purpose to what God has, and there's a plan, but now let's understand it first. The fact that we don't understand it, as I've already mentioned, doesn't make it illogical. It could be translogical, meaning more logical than you're able to understand. And with my son, he thought he knew how to drive the lawnmower. He did to a certain degree. But when he ran into trouble, then he called out for higher intelligence. The same is true for you. So how do we understand it? First, so far as the scriptures and logic is concerned, value. I can give an answer to all suffering in one very easy equation. I am not saying it will comfort you, but I am saying it's logical. Ready? Um, how many of you uh, have ever painted? Any, done any painting or artwork in here? OK, good, good, good. If I do a painting, do I have the right to change the painting? of course why because I'm the creator of it the artist is never bound to the artwork and it is the prerogative of the artist to do whatever the artist wants with the artist's own artwork I don't see any possibility for a counter to that idea if in fact God is the creator God can do whatever God wants with the artwork second value is based totally upon the artist the Mona Lisa is valued two years ago at $780 million. Part of the reason it's valued so high is because of the artists that painted it. Let me give you a better example. If I have a sketch that Leonardo da Vinci did, would it be worth more money than my artwork? <laughs> if you saw my artwork, you'd probably laugh. You'd be like, yeah, <laughs> nobody'd even buy that for a dollar. Correct? Here's my point. Because of the artist's value, the value of the artwork cre- is appreciated proportionally. If in fact you're not a very good artist, then there's no reason for us to value your artwork. But more to the point, The artist's prerogative and the artist's privilege is to do whatever the artist wants with his or her own artwork. And I'm going to go further. I'm going to guarantee you that every great artist believes that. Let me give you an example. If you walk in and and Pablo Picasso is doing some painting, and you walk in and say, oh my golly, that's incredible. That's fantastic. And Picasso says, yeah, I'm going to change this. Do you think that he's going to listen to you? No, I don't think so. I think he's going to go with Pablo Picasso. And the reason is because he's Pablo Picasso. So what I'm saying to you is, I can very easily explain suffering by one very simple idea, and here it is. Every single artist has the right to do what they want with every single piece of art in that the artwork comes from them. Example, I have a friend who does pottery. Really very good at it. And I would sit and watch him, and it was interesting because he would he would take such time and molding and what have you. It was very interesting. But then I saw him do something that that just was amazing. He'd spent like, well, like close to an hour, and he's trying to make something, and then he went. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is actually a scripture: "I am the Potter, and you are the." Mm, yeah, I've heard that. So here's my question. If I'd have said to the potter, hey, you have no right to do that to the clay, do you think that he was wondering if I'm sane? Yeah, he would. Truth of the matter is, the potter can do whatever the potter wants with the clay. And I don't see a problem with that logically at all but let's go a little di- deeper in that still emotionally that doesn't resonate with you because you feel as if you have ultimate significance that you're important I agree with you where'd you get it from a chemical accident here's what I want to tell you toasters don't have morals or meanings so the simple truth of the matter is, if you feel like you have intrinsic value, where do you get it from? You say, well, maybe because I'm a rational animal, like following Aristotle, or Richard Dawkins says, because of our brain, we're able to do all of these things. I don't doubt that it comes through our brain, but from is a different, uh, whole different venue. And so let me go a little bit further. So, so then, if you have higher intelligence, you're of greater value? By the way, Plato thought that. He said, poor people should have abortions. No, I don't believe that. I believe what gives you significance is your orinti- or your origin and your derivation. And so, whenever I hear somebody complain about suffering, my very first question I want you to hear it is: Do you believe that the people dying have value? Now, can you please tell me where they got it from? Accidents don't have meaning. Oh, so you believe in God, huh? Well, that's a different thing, isn't it? Now, second, here we talk value and meaning, but now let's go further. Mathematics. And because I like to get into analogical and analytical reasoning, I like to talk math. So let's do it. and Let's make it so that everybody enjoys it. I don't have many of these. As a matter of fact, this is my last one. Well, at least in my wallet. This is a $20 bill. It is not counterfeit, by the way. How many of you here would exchange your dollar for my 20? Raise your hand. Mm -hmm. Some of you are not good at math at all, are you? (laughs) All right. let me say it another way. If you had a dollar in your wallet, how many of you would exchange it for my 20? How many of you believe that I'll actually give you this 20 for a dollar? Some faith is not valid. <laughs> but in this case it is. First person come up here with a dollar, I will give you 20. By the way, I'm not doing that illustration anymore. <laughs> For those of you who are good at math, what if I up the ante and I said, if you have a dollar, I'll give you a hundred? Would you be more inclined? How about if I said a thousand? Yeah, by the way, I'm not doing that one. But what if I told you 27 billion? and the number will increase every day. What if I traded you a finite for something that never ended in value? Would you make that trade? Yes. And so here's what I want to tell you. God will make the trade every single day of the week of a finite for an infinite. All he has to show or believe is that there's infinite value in any finite thing he does. And therefore, if you're good at math, you'd make the trade too. You might say, well, Dr. Davis, yeah, but there's still excruciating suffering. I don't doubt that, but it doesn't deny the premise. Let's go deeper. Not only math, let's do physics. Every action has an equal and opposite. That's correct. And again, if you believe that law of physics, I'm going to push you on it. And here's what I want to say. According to the scriptures, everything affects everything. There is no such thing as an isolated event, nor a general event. And so in that there's no such thing as a general event or an isolated event, there isn't any event that doesn't have an effect, no matter how long the duration of the event. If it has an effect, it is an effective. Now, you may not like that, but that is physics and math. Or let me push it a little bit further. If God can add, through the interaction of any event affecting another event, create an infinite value, then even the event to which led to the infinite event is a value because it is a segue to an infinite event. Therefore, even something seemingly insignificant like this would have some effect called the butterfly effect, meaning that even the flapping of a butterfly's wings can create a difference that creates another difference that creates a cumulative difference. Meaning the only way for you to be able to argue God out of anything Any single event is to have a comprehensive knowledge of all events. By the way, this is exactly what God says to Job. In Job 38 through 40, God begins to answer Job. And so Job says this, I want to know why I'm going through all this. And And some people think that God doesn't answer. I am not one of them. I think he actually does answer. And so here's the answer that God gives Job when he says, okay, you got a question? I have a few of my own. So let me ask a few questions of you. So let's like a look at the stars. And so Job, if you will explain to me how the universe came together and how the stars are put in place. Go ahead. Start now. I'm sorry I didn't hear. Go to again. Oh, oh you don't know. I see. Alright, what's the connection? Job, you seem to be under the impression that your life is an isolated event. But the number of things that have to come together in any one moment is 10 to the 53rd power. So which of those events would you like to take out of the equation? So when you say, why did this happen to me, it shows a complete misunderstanding of all of the fabric of the universe, because there is no such thing as an isolated event. Every event affects every event. To the degree that they're connected, there is an effect. And so what you may not understand is that everything is tied to everything, even the bad things. And so what I'm going to promise is that there's a differentiation that will occur And when the bad things come to good people, it will make them better. I do not make that promise for everybody. And by the way, psychology backs this up. There was a study done on the greatest stressors. And what it found is people who don't believe in God are generally okay for a little while, and then they crumble. But people who believe in God and go through really rough stuff, what occurs that happens to them is the majority of them actually become stronger in their faith. And this isn't just something that I'm telling you, a story that I've made up and sounds really nice. I'm talking about a scientific study from Bowling Green University that measured the effects of trauma upon people's faith. And I remember when I worked in the psychiatric hospital, I saw violence every day and horrible things, mainly the terror of the children that had been afflicted. After a few weeks of working there, I said, I can't take this anymore. God, I'm going to quit. And in my prayer time, God said, no. Who better than you to mend the wounded, someone who understands about healing? God has a plan. And God has a purpose. And part of that purpose is that we must understand that the scriptures never say that you or anything in this world is a finished product. Let me give you an example. How many of you, when you see a building half complete, you you walk up to the foreman and begin to yell at him? Maybe if you are off schedule, you might do that. But if you're just in the midst of building something, I think that the carpenter would probably say to you, It's in process. I'm not finished. So are you. And so if you say, But the building is imperfect, the carpenter would look at you and go, Uh, yeah. It is imperfect because it's imperfect. Process. It's not complete, and so are there imperfections in our world? Yes, and that would because the world is in process. How do I know that? Revelation twenty one one says, "And I saw a new heaven and a new earth appear. The old had passed away." Are you in process? I think you are, and so what I want to tell you is, there's a reason for everything or reason for absolutely nothing. And I haven't even talked about the fact that God grants free will, how can he do it without granting the effects of it? And so when you ask, why would God allow such a thing to occur? I can give you answers. But the ultimate answer is, there's someone who knows more than I do. And even though I can explain to you, it's perfectly legitimate for an artist to do whatever the artist wants with an artist's work. And it's perfectly mathematical to trade a finite for an infinite. Or the only reason that we can even ask the question is you presuppose value. Or to say every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And that's not just something I got from my Bible, that's something I get from physics. I'm going to tell you my deep, deep belief is that you would never search for God if there wasn't a mountain that you didn't have to climb. I'll go further. I'm going to say the majority of people would never even care about God if there wasn't a thing called death. I'm sorry. I know it happened in my life that way. If you could be immortal, would you care about God? Cindy, I'm going to ask you if you're you're here, if you'll come on up. If the keyboardist is here. But from beginning to end, the scriptures are saying that even when we don't understand it, there are times where you have to believe that there is a knowledge greater than yours. And even in things which don't make any sense to us, it is always true that everything affects everything no matter how small it might be. And even in those moments where you feel like God is against you, Jesus Christ came to show you that He would be with you in your suffering, that He can feel the same things that you feel. And yet, He came not just to die, but to rise again to show you that the healing power of god is greater than all of the hurting power in this world please do not misunderstand me i am not saying that you won't have tough mountains to climb but scaling those tough mountains makes you the person that you are the person who's afraid to go up the mountain will never be a great mountain climber and so I'm going to, to close with this. In just a little while, I'm going to invite you forward to come. And if you are facing a mountain, I'd like you to come and have someone be here with you to, to be by your side, to pray with you as you go up it. Well, uh, one of the things that I like to do when I have some time off is not just go down the beach, but to go skiing. And uh, it's perhaps providential that I'm preaching this before I go skiing because I uh, haven't broken any bones as, as of yet. I did uh, have a skiing accident uh, a few years ago. And a young man walked up to me at Southeastern. and He said, Dr. Davis, I'm not trying to be smart, but do you think the Lord's trying to tell you you need another sport? I said, no, I don't think the Lord's trying to tell me that, and I'm going to keep on skiing. Well, my youngest daughter uh, is every bit as good a skier as I, but she doesn't have the, uh, she doesn't have the courage. And she's, truth of the matter, much more balanced, better skier, but she's timid. And so she, uh, she would ski with mom, because mom really doesn't like the challenge of death-defying things where you could kill yourself at any moment. She thinks that's crazy. I find it exciting and so little Rachel came up to me on the last day of our trip and she said "Uh, dad um, can I go up to the big mountains with you and I said sure and she said do you think I'm ready I said I know you're ready I've seen you ski there's no question in my mind you can do it and she said will you promise me something I said sure what is it she goes will you not be upset if I cry when I'm up there I said, of course not. I won't be upset. So we got on the gondola, and as we're going on the gondola, she's looking down at the mountains. She's going, Wow, well, this is really high. I go, Don't worry about it, sweetie. We'll be down it in a little bit. She goes, That's what I'm worried about. So <laughs> we got off the gondola and <laughs> I had forgotten that right as you get off the gondola, there's a sign that says, Warning, danger. <laughs> Only expert skiers. And so she looked at that and she goes, she goes, I need to get back on the gondola and go down. And I said, no, honey, you've come this far. Let's go down the hill. And she said, are you sure? And I said, I'm sure. I know you can do it. And she goes, will you be behind me in case I fall? Will you be behind me, dad? case I fall. I said, honey, I will watch you every step of the way. She said, okay, all right, I'll do it. So she put on her skis and she began to go down the mountain. She was a little bit slow and tepid at first. And I said, honey, you can do it. You can do it. She looked up at me and smiled. She goes, yeah, I think I can. And she started to go down the mountain. About She got about midway, she hit her stride and oh my golly, it was just a thing of beauty to watch. She was having fun. You see, now the mountain, as steep as it was, has, was what had become fun to her. Well, when we got to the bottom, she had done it. And I pulled up alongside of her and I said, well, honey, How was that? She goes, that was great! Can we do it again? And I was like, well, sure. And I said, but I got one thing I want to ask you. What helped you overcome your fears? And she said, I know you. You would give your life for me. And I know that you would never lead me anywhere where it wasn't safe to go. And so, if you say that I can do it, Dad, I know that I can. And I believed in your words more than the mountain that was before me. For I am confident of this. From the love of God. If God before us, then who can be against us? Let's all stand, shall we, and worship the Lord. Shall we stand and give him the praise of glory? Go ahead, it's okay to clap if you want. Now we've talked a lot about logic But now we need to talk about the heart. Sometimes mountains seem very large. And if you are facing one of those mountains, there are some expert ski instructors that will be here for you to pray with you and to tell you that God is on your side with those on the prayer team if you will come forward now and if you would join us in worship and if you are facing a mountain if you will come pastor phil
0: amen we you blessed to minister to this morning